Welcome to North of the Shire, your podcast on all things Lord of the Rings. And it's certainly not just about the Middler Strategy Battle Game by Games Workshop, is it, Andrew? No, no it is not. It is about <laughs> everything. Because we had everything. this discussion last time. And, you know, we're writing a short story about the Lord of the Rings universe and we're presenting it. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to do that, then golly gee, you're writing about everything. You're talking about everything. <laughs> um. I'm your host, Don, and this is episode 25. Wow, number 25. It's a milestone number. It is a milestone for two reasons. It's 25, which is a big number. It's a quarter of 100, but it's still 25. Yeah. And that is because it's our one-year anniversary. It is. Well, two weeks ago was, which was when we were supposed to record, but hey. (laughs) Yeah, this one's taking a little bit bit longer to get out than normal. I think this is our record uh, for time between episodes, I would say. I would say so, yeah. Well, you know, we'd like to make sure that we don't have anything in the bank uh, in terms of saved episodes. That way, when our episodes come out, you always know that they're most up-to-date with anything GW publishes. You always can get your most up-to-date live yeah, information. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're, they're new. They're new. Exactly, exactly. It's fresh. Exactly. Yeah, no, that was totally my fault. Uh, the, the, the vagarities of life had caught up to me, and unfortunately yeah. I had to push it one or two weeks. Not ideal. Yeah, well, like we, last week, it, you, you had you had the issue on the one night that I was actually able to record. Every other night last week, <laughs> I was working until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So oh, it, it, was, it was kind of that one day or nothing. So. Oh, okay. So I don't feel yeah. so bad then. <laughs> well, what are we talking about today? What's well, today's episode all about? Well, today's episode, as I almost knock over the second lamp in my room, uh, is all about uh, the start of our new segment. Uh, our new segment series, I guess. Uh, you know, we our new main one. topic segment. Thank series. you. There we yeah, go. Yeah. You clarified it for me. Um, it's our new main talk topic series. Uh, the previous one was all about army types, and this one is all about scenarios. We're going to go through every single scenario, and we're going to sort of rank the army types uh, in those scenarios from I love this mission to I hate this mission. And we're also going to give some tips and trips, tips and tricks to the underdog, as well as tips and tricks to maximizing your VPs in each scenario. So, yeah. Right and when you say all the scenarios, we're talking about the 18 in the uh, for match play, right? That is that's correct. We are that's talk- what we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about the 18 yeah. in the match play uh, book. Um, and who knows, by the time we get through all 18, there might be a new edition. And golly gee, we'll have to redo this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're also going to do our usual all that is gold does not glitter and we have a question from uh, our most prolific asker of questions which is Mike Shock. Um, what have I got in my pocket? We'll also do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, are you ready for that? You got a question for me today? I always have a question for you. I will figure it out an hour and a half Baloney. from now. <laughs> you do not. Uh, and what about the TBD Chronicles? It's your turn. Did you manage to Did you manage to get it done? We have another installment of the oh TBD boy. Chronicles. All right, all right. That you sounds know? good. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so how was oh, your week yeah, we're, let's start up with a little catch up because we haven't even talked to each other hardly at all over the last few weeks. I know. Um, it's been good. Um, the biggest thing right off the bat was I went to a tournament. Oh. It was just ridiculous. 18 months almost to the day. 
since our last tournament mm-hmm. um, and we had a tournament so wow. uh, it didn't go off like we planned to have like five or six small tournaments mm-hmm. and we ended up only having two in Ontario so oh. it didn't go off quite as well as we had hoped um, there were some complications with the um, COVID rules uh, within the province, which sort of complicated it at the last minute. I think that was responsible for canceling at least one or two. Uh, yeah. But anyway, we did we did have a tournament. We had 12 players at the tournament with, that I went to, and it was hella fun to I get back at it. I bet it was. Oh, I bet it was great. Oh, man, yeah, was, I, I, I wish I was there. Sadly, I wasn't. How'd you do overall in the tournament? Um, I did okay. Um, not bad. I ended up, uh, well, I think I mentioned in the last episode that I was going to take my Isengard, mm-hmm. like my, my mishmash kind of Isengard army that, mm-hmm. that I run quite, a, quite often. Um, I ended up not doing that and it was mostly for two reasons. Number one, um, I just, I got so into making army lists. So like I kind of like I made an army list for Angmar. I had my Isengard one. I made Alerts to Scouts one. Assault on Helm's Deep, Defenders of Helm's Deep, and Kazadum. So like six or seven different 500 point army lists. Like I love this kind of point level, 500 mm-hmm. points, because I, I love the lower the point value, the generally the more I like it. You know, um, it's funny. I, I know this because you sent me all of those lists, and you're like, "Here's a new list. Critique. Here's a new list. Critique. Here's a new list. Oh, critique. did I? Yeah, you yeah, did. yeah. <laughs> I um, but also the also the um, the two main factors were one, um, I've had this uh, mini quote unquote mini display board that I was working on in mm-hmm. the spring for my it was for a Kazadum battle company mm-hmm. so it's quite small like it was intended only to hold like around 20 models or something yeah. um, but I'm like looking at it and I'm like I gotta get this finished because I got it all made and painted black mm-hmm. and then I just stopped working on it right because it's like and eh, now I have to paint forget it put it away I know so so I thought you know what I should finish this off I should just run a Kazadim army at this tournament and then at the same time as I was pondering that I heard that Chris who was coming with me Chris from the podcast here mm-hmm. he was going to be playing his Lake Town army army of Lake Town Army of Lake Town, sorry, yeah. And so then I was like looking at my lists and I'm like, yeah, that would crush this list. Yep, it would destroy this list. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would uh. slaughter this list. And like, I'm like, okay, so it would definitely ruin my Isengard army because he's got like 14 or 15 like bowmen in the list. So like half these lists, you could just stand back and shoot them off the table. Um, so that was one reason there. So I thought, you know what, I can, I can build a, a Kazadum army that would be very hard for him to, to deal with um, in that type of way. So mm-hmm. anyway, those were kind of the two factors. And I ended up winning three out of my four games. Um, so I was very happy with and, that. And, and which and you, what was one of your wins? You know, was it against Chris? Uh, well, I'll just go quickly through them. Game one was domination against a new player. It actually was one of the store owners there. Mm-hmm. It was a really good guy named Will. Um, so we played a game of domination. Tough mission for me. So the missions were the first four missions in the book. So domination was the first one, and um, he had um, the wolves of Isengard. Didn't he? The wolves of Isengard. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god, it's just like terrible, <laughs> terrible mission and matchup for for the army. So um, anyway, he he won that one, um, six to two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I played Michael 
Campbell, who's also um, a frequent question asker mm -hmm. that we have, uh, and he played Thranduil's Halls. It was um, Legolas, Toriel, and a captain, and Mirkwood Rangers, an oh, army we've okay. talked about before. There we go. And like I, you know, it could have been like sit back and shoot me. It was to the death. And, uh, you know, that's not Michael's way. So uh, he got, he got, you know, he did some shooting, killed some of my stuff, sniped out my banner so I wouldn't get those points. And, uh, but we did get in there and mix it up a bit. Um, so I managed to win that one. Highlight, I had a um, dwarf ranger kill Toriel. What? In yeah, combat threw an axe, oh, threw no. an axe into combat, hit her, wounded her. And and then she just boshed her role, I think, in combat. And I, I think anyway, I think I killed her in combat. Yeah, that must have been it. Yeah, and uh, then I killed her. So I was like, oh my god, man of the match, right there, man of the match. That's shame. Because um, like, I remember Michael Campbell would always complain about Toriel because she never would yeah. shoot anything or hit anything with her bow. So to be wounded by a dwarf axe <laughs> being thrown yeah. at her. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun game though. It was great to see Michael again uh, after so long, and uh, we had good chat. Uh, and he was actually very complimentary about the podcast too, which was which was very nice to hear as well. And then I played another uh, young guy, Mike, who's new, mm -hmm. um, and he played Isengard. Actually, it was Assault on Helm's Deep, but it, he didn't have any ballista in there. It was just all troops, um, and it was whole ground. And mm -hmm. you know how whole ground was. It was, you know, I got to the center first somehow with my stubby legs, and it was just a huge melee in the center and time ran out and i had more guys in the middle there you go and uh lastly game four game four um what was the mission it's the one where you get points for killing people oh you have is to that? count you have to count all oh, your lords of, uh, battle. Lords, of battle. lords of battle yeah yeah, yeah that one um and i played chris you so Lord's tailored in the eventuality that you'd play oh, him. Oh yeah, you so him. so you know, yeah, I did tailor my list to play against him as much as possible because that list is so bloody good. And uh, I got the mission that I could only dream for out of the out of the four. It is the weakest one that he goes against. Yeah, because he's a horde. And uh, it was it was a really really tight game, uh, and I did manage to win like in the end only because Balin survived I think twice being trapped by a bunch of people including Bard and not being killed wow like if he had done that it would have ended up as a tie we figured at the end mm -hmm. but but it worked out okay for me because it was like my shooting was better than his shooting so I figured yeah. if he wanted to stand back and shoot at me with four plus to hit and six to wound um, and I had three plus to hit and five to wound. You know, I'd take that all day long, even though he had more sh archers than me. And so that worked out well. And then when he got into combat, um, he was still struggling to wound because he needed sixes. Mm -hmm. But like, oh my God, that army, it's like a horde of guys all fight for like 12 inch. What is the banner? Is it 12, 12 inches? inches, 12 inch yeah. banner. Uh, it's just ridiculous. It's well, so hard to fight. Well, um, it's fight three, but... Because yeah. the money bag rule with on money the master, yeah. um, he gives a 12-inch banner, and yeah. it also gives plus one fight. 
Yeah, so I've like I've played that army quite a few times now because Chris has it, and uh, Adam Marcel here in Ontario, he also has the army. Well, he has survivors, but it's similar. I've played him like at least once, so I've played the army almost half a dozen times now. So I know how to beat the army, but in this game here, a lot of what I would do to beat the army, it just wasn't an option, mm-hmm. right? Um, so really had to grind it out. But it was a great game. We had a lot of fun. So in yeah. the end, I ended up coming third. So Nice. Congratulations. Yeah. So as I was saying, telling somebody uh, online, I said, I managed to get one of my dwarven boots onto the podium somehow. That's right. <laughs> That's right. You, you snuck in by the, uh, the tips of your yeah. beard. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah but it was great to be back at a tournament and i think half the people there or maybe even seven out of the 12 were new people but new people to the uh the league you know what crazy that's fantastic considering yeah. like we haven't had any physical interaction for at least like i know 16 to 18 months you know it was amazing yeah, yeah. it was great to see that yeah mm-hmm. so uh what about you did you get any painting done in the last few weeks Nope, uh, not at all. Um, I because the second bedroom I've been using as my office, and my wife works in the living room, so we did a switch out of that, which meant like it was happened on the weekend. It was like seven hours of cleaning. <laughs> oh mm-hmm. my god! And unfortunately, my models all got put in the in the right in the closet. There, sad to say. All organized though, so if I just pull up my GW travel box, everything's there. But um, all right, all yeah, right. Yeah, sad to say, have not touched, um, not put a lick of paint on anything. Yeah, I had great plans. Like I don't know when it was now, a few weeks ago. Anyways, I um, went. My wife and I went to uh, my sister's has a cottage, and we go mm-hmm. there every year. And I went there, and I brought all my stuff, and was gonna paint a whole bunch of things. Didn't even open a pot of paint the whole time I was there. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it happens, you know, like I, I would yeah. bring up books to my parents' cottage and then when you get there, <clears throat> you're like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to relax. All I ended up doing mostly is just like sitting and staring at the lake and drooling, basically. Yeah. After this last year, it was just like, oh my God, it's time to veg. Yeah. Like Chris, so. man, like that guy is like, he has discipline when it comes to painting. Oh, he will find any opportunity to like yeah. sit down and paint for three hours and uh, kudos to him for being able to have that like. yeah well he went on a family uh vacation to his family's cottage and while he was there he painted 30 models yeah like he's like what jeez man you're killing me here i know yeah so well, crazy. well other than that i've been uh you know i had today i had a bit of a ponder and i thought it would throw this uh, your way okay. uh it's a games workshop ponder you know, we, oh, yeah. we live in we live in Ontario, uh, you know, and uh, we're we're close to Toronto, both of us. And Toronto, Toronto, Toronto is I'm not going to say that. Sorry, it's just Toronto. <laughs> I I'm not uh, uh, Toronto. Toronto, it's Toronto. Uh, yeah, but um, it is the largest city in Canada and the fifth largest in North America. I thought you know, as I was perusing, fourth largest, fifth largest, isn't it? It's fourth. It's fourth now. Yeah. Well, I, I just read I read an article about it after you told me that. Oh. Okay. Apparently Google has it wrong. They have Chicago as the fourth largest, but it's actually Toronto. Oh, that's one. Well, okay, okay. All right, Toronto. There we go. Not that it matters, whatever. Fourth or fifth. Sure. No, but that's hey, it's even better, right? We're moving yeah. up. We're moving on up. Moving on up. Uh so yeah. Um and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be perfect if Toronto or you know, somewhere in the GTA had a Warhammer world? 
very similar to you know Games Workshop over in Nottingham. I said, you know, we're, we're the fourth largest city, you know, and rents cheaper cheaper than heck than all the other cities and the other first three, uh, and. We've got an international airport, you know, hop, skip, and a jump away. There's hotels aplenty. You could easily have any sort of tournament being run here, um, and that would cover all of, you know, Canada as well as all of, you know, um, eastern and northeastern USA. And there's a huge subset uh, of, of players on the East Coast. And GW only has... Um, like a, a Warhammer cafe, if you would, out in California. So I'm like, there's a there's a need for a store, like a big store, out on the east side, and like Toronto would be perfectly placed for it. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be so nice? It would, yeah. I love the idea. This reminds me of like how long ago was it that the Battle Bunker closed? We used to have yes. something here called the Battle Bunker, which was in Oakville, I believe, which mm-hmm. is. Um, sort of in the greater Toronto area. And it was closed shortly after, um, well, I guess at the same time that they made all of the distribution for Canada come out of um, the U.S. Where does yeah. it come out of again? I forgot. Tennessee, the city. Texas, something like that. Yeah, Tennessee. Uh, I actually read about this. It's Tennessee. Yeah. And like we used to have a distribution center in Canada and we used to have the battle bunker, which was like a big hall with tons of tables, beautiful handmade tables. It was fantastic to game there. And they oh closed goodness. down the whole shooting match when they moved all of the uh, distribution down to the U.S., which was a shame. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, yeah, it's a cost thing, which I, you know, I get it, but yeah, I get it too. But I mean, there's probably enough people in Canada that buy. And like, where's, where's, it's like, it's Memphis, Tennessee, I think it is. That's far, farther enough south that it, you could probably do with another distribution center in the north. Um, and so I'm like, you know, Toronto is, is well positioned for this. And it'd mm-hmm. be fantastic, you know, because like, I don't know how many times you hear about TOs from any game, like 40K AOS or MESPG, saying, okay, we need space to run this tournament. Um, most of our local gaming stores will cover the small, you know, sizes, you know, the, the 10 to 30s. Um, but if you want to run like a 50 or 60 person tournament, I'm talking MESG, MESPG 50 or 60, but for AOS and 40K, 100 person events, you're right. having to talk about creating like almost like a, a conference like weekend where you're including all sorts of other games because there's just no, it's not viable to run like a 100, 120 person event um in or in or around the gta easily yeah so having like a warhammer world available to just be like look we'll run warhammer world events but we'll also rent out our space to anyone who wants to use it for you know these gw events i I guess for a big company like um games workshop the question of something like that comes down to like what's the purpose of it like what would be the purpose of it for them like would it be would it be a marketing tool would it be like a money-making thing would it be like uh, i don't know what like it would probably not be profitable you know like Mm -hmm. directly profitable so why would they do it it's um, it's, it's something that well, I don't understand. So. Well, I don't think it, I don't, I disagree in the fact that, you know, you don't think it'd be profitable because right now GW is running like two or three, I probably think it's like three or four gaming stores in, in Ontario, right? So the idea is if you would open up a Warhammer world, you'd close all those and you'd take all that staff and you'd throw them into Warhammer world, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're consolidating costs. So you've just cut Okay, yeah, that's a good that. idea actually, right? yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
I don't mind driving, you know, maybe 20 minutes extra outside of my normal drive to a GW to mm-hmm. go to a place like Warhammer World, which is ginormous. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm yeah. cool with that. Um, yeah. And, like, on top of that, you would also use it as, like, a tournament um a, a tournament space, right? Because when you actually go to Warhammer World, the actual store itself is very small. It's not big. Like, it's probably if you went into like a, a like a standard games workshop, it's maybe twice the size of that. That's that's it. That's all the size this is. The vast yeah. bulk of Warhammer World, outside of their crazy tour that you can go on, but the vast bulk of the space is set aside for gaming tables two house 120 player events right and then they've got bugman's bar and that's pretty much it that's the 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 actual warhammer world itself so if you took a look at that and said to yourself well let's emulate that for a minute except for the big tour and just create a gaming store a tournament uh, space and a and a restaurant slash bar okay if your goal is to fill that space every weekend or every other weekend with a tournament that people are renting your space out with, or they're paying you like GW uh, for they're paying you for like a um, like a Games Workshop uh, tickets, like an official GW event, right? Um, you can make some serious bank off that because you know, like you can fill the hundred spots, um, probably get five thousand dollars in rent for the whole shebang. Um, you know, and all of a sudden, or, or, you know, like a thousand dollars rent or something like that. And all of a sudden two or three of those events plus sales, uh, and even web sales, because you could use it as a a miniaturized distribution center for that area Mm -hmm. between all of those things, plus the Bugman's bar sales and all that kind of stuff, you for sure could probably cut a small profit at elite at a minimum and also use that as sort of like a marketing piece. Right. Yeah, I like the idea, too, where you said, you know, you would combine a couple of existing stores and, you know, um, move them into this new location. So you're saving that rent and, and that other overhead. So it sort of eliminates part of the expense of this. Look at us. We're putting together a whole business plan here. Come on, GW, make it happen. Right. Exactly. Like there, there, there's a market here, you know, and you're going to get the U.S. You're going to get the U.S. citizens who are going to want to come up, you know, once the government lets them actually come up. Uh, and they'll happily fly up here because it's cheap, right, relative to the dollar. And they'll spend money here because the U.S. dollar uh, does very well in Canada, which means you'll get a lot of, uh, like, incremental sales that come out of this. Yeah, 26% extra for your dollar. That's right. Of the border. Yeah, and they are allowed to come up now. You just have to have proof of vaccine, blah, blah, yeah. blah, you know. Okay, so that's not too bad. All that nonsense. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not nonsense. Yeah. But, you know that stuff all the important stuff uh right? yeah that's a good idea i like your idea i'm for it i'm gonna back that idea all right good what, where do i sign where do you sign <laughs> gotta get a petition going <laughs> toronto this is the place to put it like because even now like when i'm looking on a lot of these websites like um like a lot of facebook pages for for 40k and aos and mesbg like there's a tournament every weekend almost like when it was in a full swing there would mm-hmm. be for sure a tournament every weekend now imagine if yeah. GW just said, have every tournament with us. You can yeah, rent our it space. Would be, it would be so much easier. <laughs> it would be so much easier because they'd be like, what terrain do you need? We've got 40K terrain. We've got AOS terrain. We've got Middle Earth terrain. we got it all. Rent our, rent yeah. our space out. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool yeah, idea. Yeah. Wish wish listing, but it is it is conceivable. It is conceivable and is very much wish, wish listing. So. Yeah, whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, before we end our little catch up, I just want to say I forgot. I watched um, a YouTube, a series of videos uh, on YouTube on a channel called Real Terrain Hobbies. Oh, um, yes. And it's it's by a Canadian guy, mm-hmm. Neil. I think he, he's out west. I think maybe Alberta. Yeah. Um, and he made just like this insane wargaming board of the Shire. I know. Like it was, it's it's amazing series of videos and an amazing uh, project. Uh, dis- it's like a display board, but it's a gaming board. Um, and and one crazy part about it too is like he like the Hobbit fronts that you you buy from Forge World. Like he actually designed his own. Um, in in like for 3d printing um similar to that and i think he said he had four or so of them done and was working on other stuff and um he'll be running a kickstarter for that stuff but it was incredible stuff um really good video like if you're a terrain making person um definitely check out that series i think there were four videos and actually Lockie from zorpa zorp uh, was actually uh, like he, this guy Neil contacted Lockie and asked him if he could paint up a, a couple of armies for him. And so Lockie has what? a video as well on Zorpazorp about the painting of these of this army. Actually, it's ruffians and hobbits, mm-hmm. and then sending them to Canada for use, like display on this board. So wow. anyway, that was like a total of five videos. Uh, really good, really good uh, series to check out. I don't know what it is whenever I because I, I watched most of those and I don't know whatever it is but I always love it when they get to like the okay the, the landform is created now let's start putting down like all of like your dirts and your 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 your, um, your, your static grasses and all that kind of stuff and I'm just watching I'm just like this looks so cool yet it's yeah, well, he, yeah. He, he does a good job putting the video together too and mm-hmm. explaining it and and whatnot so it was it was enjoyable mm-hmm Awesome, awesome. All right, I think you're ready to move on? I'm ready. Let's move on down the road. All right, let's talk about our new series on scenarios and we're going to start with domination and we're talking about dominating domination um so i'll start out by just reading um sort of a, a skimmed version of of this scenario okay um so layout place five objective markers one is in the center of the board and each player places two of the other four each of which must be at least 12 inches away from another objective and six inches away from the board edge starting positions both players roll a d6 the player with the highest result chooses one of the deployment zones Uh, They then select a warband in their force to deploy within 24 inches of their board edge, so right up to the center. Players then alternate deploying units. Objectives. The game lasts until the end of a turn in which one force has been reduced to a quarter of its starting strength. Mm. Uh, Scoring of victory points. What do we got here? Uh, Two victory points for each objective marker that has at least one of your models and no enemy models within three inches. 
one victory point for each objective marker that has both friendly and enemy models, but more friendly than enemy models within three inches. One victory point for causing one or more wounds on an enemy leader or if you kill the leader. One victory point for breaking. And that is the the mission. Alrighty, well, I think some clear standouts here are one, placement of objectives, right? That is gonna be your, it's gets super important um, in terms of how you place your objectives because that is in large part how you are going to A, win the game and B, deny your opponent uh, chances for them to win the game and we can talk about that a bit later. Mm -hmm. uh, the other piece is that this is one of the few missions where break and leader kill are not um, three points and two points respectively, right? So yeah. other missions you have the the seven three two, where seven points is the main focus of the the game, like Lords of Battle. Seven points is um, triple double and more uh, kills than your opponent or more wounds caused, uh, and you know break would be three points and leader is two. In this one, break is one and leader is one. So yeah, so not many some, points for those. Yeah, not many points for those. And remember, it's not killing your opponent's leader. It's just wounding them. So whether mm -hmm. you kill them or not, you still get a victory point. So again, yeah, and it's not. It doesn't matter if you're broken either. It's just whether you break. Like in some yeah. missions, you get extra points if you're not broken, but you break your opponent. Yeah. That's not the case here. And it's like I always look at this mission as as kind of the default of this mission um, is that you kind of both control your back of objectives like the ones that you place or mm. if depending on if which side of the table you take um, and you sort of fight over the center objective and fight over the wounding of a leader and breaking of your opponent that's kind of the default um, so the center objective and and those other two factors become like the main things of the mission, but certainly the um, like um, contesting a objective becomes very important because it'll like reduce the amount of victory points that your opponent will get for it. Yeah, and you know as you get closer to twenty five percent. Uh, the quarter condition, you have to be very mindful of how many kills you've made on your opponent because you really, you sort of comes down near the end and we'll talk about this a lot more in the tips and tricks section, um, but it comes down like when you get to, uh, when you're fairly close to quartering, you have to start looking at positioning and movement to make sure you're capturing those, those objectives or you're flipping, and by flipping I mean we go from a contested position to a you totally control this position um, so that you can start maximizing those points because this mission is very much a mission where you know, five and six victory points is the norm, uh, and those really good generals will pull the 10 and the 12 victory points out. It's rare, but it's, it's doable, okay? Oh, absolutely. Do we want to like rank, um the army types that we have done in previous episodes uh like which ones are really good and which ones are not so good at domination i think so i mean like as we talked about army types for so long and it's the easiest way for us to sort of incorporate armies in this discussion is talking about the army types right it just yeah so much and so, so we'll use we'll use the types that we sort of established in earlier on mm -hmm. and, and our rating system is just a simple you know one two three four five one being in our case one being the best and four being or five being the worst uh not everyone hits a five but um you know and that's kind of where we're at 
And if you're an army type, if you bring an army that is a specific type and you roll up to domination and you, you know, you're ranked one, well, you have a really good advantage uh, and you have a really strong advantage uh, and getting a big win is a lot easier for you than if you were, say, like a four or a five, you know. Mm-hmm. And so let's dive into the first one. Surprise, surprise, as domination is the um, basic level objective game. Horde armies are ranked at number one. Definitely. Because there are so many models, they can play all the objectives. And objective placement isn't critical. You can literally throw your objectives in your backfield and just push your entire army up. And you can literally play like the 99-1 game where 99% of your army goes forward, 1% of your army sits on your back, you know, two objectives, and all of a sudden your opponent is struggling to hold on to their objectives as you almost invariably contest all of your opponent's objectives. So, so number 2 is is going to go to the mobile army yes. type. Um, again, just because you're able to pressure all of the different objectives. Um, and so like it, it's objective placement is important, but not super critical because even if, even if your objective, uh, on the other side of the table is in a really, you know, distant position, you can get to it quickly, um, because you're mobile, but exactly. we can talk more about that later. Yeah. Uh, number three is a sort of a three way tie shield wall, combined arms and line breaker. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is that all three of these fall sort of into the same category, which is they're not very fast, right? Sometimes they have march, but generally speaking, they aren't very fast and they're definitely not as numerous as something as something like a horde. So therefore, objective placement is critical. And these types of armies generally play for the eight. And by the eight, I mean they are trying to hold three objectives uh, and then they go for break and leader kill or at least leader wound right so eight. yeah like when i describe the default way this game plays like that's kind of how these are all playing yep. you're kind of playing you're holding your own two on your side fighting for the center objective and trying to break your opponent and kill their leader that's kind of how these armies play this mission because sometimes the the distant objectives are going to be a little bit too hard for you to get to yeah and and these army types will almost always triangle, and we'll talk about triangling later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is critical um, for these army types to have a chance of winning. And let's jump into the last one, Don. Which one is it? What you, of all the army types, it is uh, Leaf Blower. So not a great mission or scenario for for Leaf Blower, simply because um, you're sort of standing on your back line shooting, or maybe not on your back line, but you're standing on the two objectives that that are on your side of the table and shooting while your opponent is moving up to you trying to get to you so that means you're really only playing on about a third of the table um, and you have to make sure that it's a very dicey situation that you leave yourself enough time to rush up and grab the middle objective before your opponent hits 25 percent which can be very difficult Mm-hmm. I mean, you're giving up so much board control here. Right? Like, if you're playing on the 12-inch line, let's say hypothetically, with all of your with your two objectives there, and you've got your whole you know pl- plethora of models all shooting away, because really, leaf blower lists need a couple of rounds of shooting to sort of uh, give them a numbers advantage. 
and if you're doing that, you're pretty much sacrificing three quarters of the board. And in a game where it's all about objective grabbing and you don't have cav generally, um, sacrificing three quarters of the board of the board is really painful for you in the long run. Now we're on to the next segment, which is thoughts on the underdog. Right? We've already uh, ranked um, these army types in from one to four, but we don't really want to help the stronger opponents. We want to help the underdogs who are going to struggle at this mission. <laughs> Exactly. So, Don, where do you want to start with? Let's start with Horde versus everybody else. Okay. Okay, so um, this army is is probably the Horde's favorite mission to play because they have an advantage in this mission over pretty much every other army type in the game. And also because this mission, it almost has no effect on the way the horde army plays like yeah. as a horde player you do not have to adjust your strategy at all to play domination um, because essentially you're just sending your horde across the board at your opponent and it's as simple as that um, so in that sense it's it's a big bonus for for horde players to draw this mission um, it's a serious uphill battle though if you're playing against a horde army um, because horde armies can challenge all of the objectives and when you're deploying like you're when you're at the very beginning of the game when you're putting down your objectives they will forcibly put them as far apart as possible just to make it even harder for their opponent to to stay together and and can and control those objectives um, if you are playing against a horde um, you can pretty much forget about getting 12 points mm -hmm. you, you're you're not going to do that um, it's it's near impossible to do that against a horde with this mission uh, realistically the most you'll get is is eight victory points this number eight keeps coming up in the in talking about this mission um, and you need to focus on trying making a triangle of your of three objectives and of course wounding the enemy leader and breaking the horde and um, when we say trying what, what, how do you say this word? Tri triangling. triangling. Yes. <laughs> You're, it's probably not even a word, but... <laughs> it's probably not. Um, <laughs> three objectives. It's like you're essentially putting them as close to 12 inches apart as you can uh, in a triangle formation so that you can keep your entire army together mm -hmm. for the most part and still contest or control those three objectives. Um, you're kind of giving up on the other two objectives, but against a horde, you really need to keep your army together or you're done for. So by placing your objectives that way, you have a chance at, at, at getting some points from three of them um, while keeping your army together. So um, let me just quickly interject here before you continue. Do it. Um, triangling um, is essentially making use of uh, domination's mission um, deployment rules, and that is the objective deployment rules, where it says you have to have your objectives 12 inches apart um, or 6 inches from the, the board edge, any mm -hmm. board edge. And so the idea here is you are trying to create uh, it is an equilateral triangle, which is all sides yeah. are equal. So you're trying to create an equilateral triangle where all sides are 12 inches apart, i.e. all objectives you have are 12 inches apart. And you're using your two objectives and you're using the center objective, which is always placed. Okay. Yeah. So essentially you're, you're fighting with your 
pretty much your entire army inside that triangle so yeah. that you're fighting for the three objectives that make up that triangle and with the objective being that you know mostly against a horde army you're trying to achieve a break on them and once you do they start running off the table um, and when that happens you're going to jump on all three of those objectives and fully control them and get the majority of the points for controlling objectives yeah now there is something i will say though I'll just say this real quick. And this has been used against me in the past. So against a horde army, it's very important to realize this. While the triangle is key in a lot of cases, depending upon how good your opponent is, they can use it against you, okay? Uh, and what I mean by this is, remember, you place your objectives before you roll for your deployment zone, okay? So mm -hmm. if you're playing a horde and you've got your your two objectives, you place them 12 inches back from the battle line and you've got the center objective sort of creating your triangle. If you fail the roll for deployment zones, your opponent's just gonna switch sides with you. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden they've left you with, two, with a deployment zone that has two objectives on either side, right? Because generally horde wanna put their objectives to the far left and to the far right, right? Especially against um, those uh, shield wall, line breaker, and um, uh, combined arms lists, okay? Because then that forces them to no longer be able to defend those objectives, right? And that plays into the horde strength. So in this particular case, what you may end up wanting to do is, if you're gonna triangle, always make sure your second objective is on the, the center line, right? So if your opponent does flip the, the, the board on you, you can at least be fighting for two and still push through to get to the third one. It's only 12 inches away. And so your focus will be keeping your entire battle line in the small section, fighting for these two objectives and just really just trying to do like a, like a line break, push through the horde line, get to the other objective and push for a break. Um, so, yeah. All right, let me just give a word on mobile armies versus horde, um, because mobile armies are very good at domination, but you're still you're still at a disadvantage when you're playing against a horde, because um, you have to play a very cagey game, like shooting combined with like hit and run attacks on on the horde. Um, you don't want to get overwhelmed by by that horde. Um, you can never sort of allow the horde to come at you in full force and and overwhelm overwhelm you that's why like the hit and run is, is so important um but it still needs to break the horde army and again this is all about timing so you got to um you got to position yourself to grab at least three objectives um and at the point when the game is coming to an end, you have to be able to see this. And Andrew, you mentioned earlier about um, keeping track of uh, your opponent's numbers and you know figuring out when they're going to have to break and when you're going to get to 25%. As that's where you make your play to try to grab more than three. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Like your, 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 your goal, and we'll talk about this in the tips and tricks section, and it all comes down to the break, right? The, because the, the movement element to grab all five happens between break and quarter, right? And so, because that's the time where like, when you break your opponent, you now have a chance to control how quickly they break or how slowly they break. And 
you can then use those turns, uh, as many turns as you can get, and rush out and start grabbing those objectives you couldn't hold before. Yeah, this is one of these missions and one of these instances where you want to suddenly stop killing your opponent. Yeah, absolutely. During that time, during the time between break and 25%, it's like, okay, I'm at, a, I'm at an advantage now. I need to stop killing my opponent so that I can get on all of the objectives before he reaches 25%. Because he'll lose, lose units every turn just just from his cur failing courage tests. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, we'll talk about the break because that is such a critical component to domination uh, a little bit mm -hmm. later. But you're absolutely right. It's one of the ways in which you can score five objectives against Horde. Uh, and that, the other piece to this is you really want to fight for a break against Horde as quickly as possible because if they're playing that kind of 99-1 principle where 99% of their force is moving up and 1% staying back, Horde generally don't have good courage. So those, you know, those models on the backfield well, it may evaporate from a bad courage test and all of a sudden they're no longer holding backfield objectives. They're just fighting barely for the three in front of them. So what could be what looks like a... You know, you're losing because you're contesting three objectives. You got a break. You've killed their leader, let's say. Um, you know, you've got five points maybe, but your opponent has still got four points from the back. And you may not be contesting all those objectives in, in that triangle in your favor. So you could still be losing against your opponent even though they're broken. But that break, getting it as early as possible, uh, will start hopefully whittling down as many of those backfield holders uh, and allow you to win against Horde. Alrighty, so let's jump into mobile versus everyone else. Uh, so the big trick with domination and mobile is that mobile armies can be everywhere, which is an advantage and a disadvantage, right? Um, it's an advantage in that they can place their objectives wherever they want because they know they can get to them. And they always know they can challenge you uh, by hitting you, uh, you know, those, uh, the shield wall, the line breaker, the combined arms army, they can sort of envelop you from all sides and get at your um, get at your objectives from behind. So it makes it very hard to lock them down uh, to, for like a non-mobile army to lock down a mobile army. Okay. And even if you had a big horde army and you strung out your horde as long as possible, well, a mobile army could just literally throw its entire weight into one of your flanks and will flip it very quickly. Uh, at which point in time, they now have access to your backfield objectives. And as a horde army, you're now having to play to defensive, which is what you don't want to do as a horde in, in domination. You always want to be offensive. Okay, so, so that's the big advantage of a mobile army. But the disadvantage is they don't have a tremendous amount of models. And um, when they commit themselves to the combat, like by rushing in and charging, that's kind of when they're at their most vulnerable. Because again, we talked about this in the mobile army type segment, is that when they fail that second turn heroic move off, um, and they get countercharged, all of a sudden they'll start losing their models very quickly because those cab models are all of a sudden now one attack models, mm -hmm. um, which can be brought down very quickly. And so Horde, sorry, mobile armies don't want to be diving into combats early. So if you can force a mobile army to charge you as early as possible, you can force that scenario where you can start dehorsing them and kill their mobility. Okay, and so that's the big thing about them. Um, their their objectives are everywhere, and they can they can contest those objectives uh, and claim yours. But you really want to force them to charge you. The other piece is, 
Mobile armies, for the most part, hate being in difficult terrain. They hate it. So if you're going to place your objectives, try to place them in difficult terrain because that means they have to dismount to grab an objective or a mounted model will have to move, what is it? It's like four, four inches for every one, I think it is, in difficult terrain, something like that. And so all of a sudden, you know, just being three inches away from the lip of difficult terrain all of a sudden keeps a horde army or mobile army, sorry, um, away from an objective, being able to get onto that objective quickly. And so putting them in difficult terrain is a great way to slow down a mobile army. And it makes it a lot easier for you to defend yourself because if you have your archer sitting in a piece of difficult terrain on an objective, a mobile army has to shoot you off the objective. It can't charge you because it doesn't get any charging bonuses. And Mm -hmm. um, if it wants to dismount, it's losing all of its advantages because most mobile armies do not have spear supports, right? So they don't have an effective battle line. Uh, So yeah, definitely if you're this other type of army, the underdog, triangle your objective, right? To limit the mobile army's advantage, right? Because if you're defending yourself, again, we talked about that non-horde. We're talking about the line breaker, the combined arms, and the shield wall. If you're fighting in that triangle, you're really limiting the hordes or the the mobile army's ability to grab your objectives, right? And you don't want to separate yourself against a mobile army. It will pick you off, okay? The third is you kind of want to look at the battlefield to find where you are best suited to set up your triangle because this is one of these situations where you literally could set your objectives up in your opponent's deployment zone. In which case your opponent's like, what are you doing? Well, one, I'm literally going to move into your deployment zone in in a very tight formation to grab those three objectives I just placed because now I'm in your deployment zone. Now I'm also 12 inches away from your other objectives. Right, And so your opponent then has to rush at you to prevent you from getting into your triangle, right? And again, it's all about forcing a charge. You want to force them to charge because you want them to be charging you when it's not their advantage, right? And you can use things like terrain to sort of create that hot gate scenario where it's like you're limiting the amount of models that can charge you. Um, These are all sorts of things that you can do to really limit a mobile army's ability to uh, take the uh, the win against you. One other thing I would throw in there too that you didn't mention uh, mobile here is the time game um you know we're talking about doing making decisions based on when your opponent is breaking or coming to 25 percent and, mm-hmm. and so on and so on well almost regardless of that and independent of that is is the clock um because like the one game that i lost um uh, this past weekend uh, was against a mobile army and I was essentially playing a shield wall army and I did not triangle my objectives. I probably had two of them that were 12 inches apart but the third one was was quite a bit more than 12 inches away so it meant that I couldn't bunker up as much as, as I wanted to so I made a mistake in, in putting down my objectives. But what happened was it was a very short game in terms of time. It was an hour and a half game. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ended up happening, you know, we did our shooting, we did our fighting, we, he was doing some hit and runs, and, you know, he, you know, he charged in. But, like, at, you know, when we came to the point where he could see that the game was only going to last, like, one more turn, like, he just charged everything into the three... Um, objectives that would be contested you know Mm -hmm. he had two in his backfield locked down and so he just threw all of his models 
um, at the remaining and one of them I held on to and the other two he ended up with more models on them than mm -hmm. I did now if the game had gone another turn I may have been able to clean them off one of the objectives or maybe even both but like he had his eye on the clock so there you go he just had to do to make that make that commitment when the time was right yeah absolutely like as again we, we talk about the break but again like you know to your point the clock is also key here because especially for mobile armies because for mobile armies they don't want to commit too early which is this whole the whole reason why i was ranting about how you need to force them to commit you need to give them a reason mm -hmm. for why they need to commit early so they want to stay out as long as they can so they can shoot you as long as they can right because most mobile armies that are good like as in like quality wise have like a 33 percent bow limit and so they want to stay out as long as they can to shoot you and then they'll start diving into combat with you and they'll always be watching the clock to figure when is the time when is the go time so if you can as a non-mobile player, force their hand early, that gives you more time to be able to fight them on terms they don't like. But I like I like that uh, I like that breakdown of your game. It was interesting. Right it was a fun yeah. game. It was a really good game, actually. Awesome. Okay, let's dive last into Leaf Blower versus Everybody. Because we're flipping it a bit because Leaf Blower was the worst of all the army types in this mission. Uh, and this is honestly, regardless of which uh, you know opponent or army type you play, Leaf Blower is going to really struggle with this mission. Because again, yeah, because this isn't really about killing your opponent, it's about board control. It's all about board control <laughs> and killing your opponent actually lets your opponent win the game because break does very little for you. Yeah, ooh, I get a point. Yeah, yeah but so holding three objectives gives me six, so who yeah. cares? It's just like, if I'm holding four of the objectives, I'm fine with you breaking me at this point. Go yes. ahead. <laughs> I, in fact, I will not stand fast and I'll just break myself faster so we hit 25%. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, for a leaf blower, you what you really need to do is you need to play kind of like the hopscotch game. Okay, and what that means is... Um, you want to spread your objectives out in most scenarios, in most against most army types. Spread your objectives out. So like six inches from the left side of the board edge, six inches from the right. Okay, you're gonna split your army in half too. Okay, and this applies to pretty much everything except um, horde. You don't want to do this against with horde. You want a triangle, uh, and you want to play for the eight. But anyways, so you want to split your objectives, split your army, and you're gonna kind of play the hopscotch game where you're gonna move half your army forward while the other half stays stationary and just shoots, right? And then eventually, that half that moves forward for positioning and board control, it will stop and start shooting, and the back and the second half will start moving up. And you'll kind of play this like um, one half moves, one half doesn't, till you get, and you get to the point where you've got models scattered around everywhere, but you're never playing for the center. That's just a terrible way to play it with, um, with a leaf blower. You want to always be controlling the outside um, flanks, if you would, if your opponent, especially if your opponent's triangled in the center, okay? Um, and eventually you want to just start whittling them down and you only want to make a move for the center or those main objectives is when you break your opponent because that's at the point where you're able to actually start diving into combat, um, whittling away, and more importantly, because most leaf blowers have a fairly large model count, um, you're able to start contesting objectives and flipping them in your favor. And that's when you'll start noticing that um, the points will start racking up your way. Um, is it easy though? No, it is not. 
and this is one of these ones where if you're a, if you're a uh, leaf blower that that has woodland creature this is one where you're saying leapfrog you know this is where you want to run from tree to tree right yeah or from or from uh woodland base to woodland base so like you you know have have one group standing still you know on a terrain base of of woodland terrain while another one is trying to run <laughs> towards another piece of woodland terrain certainly against a uh, a mobile cavalry army that's what you want to try to be doing oh absolutely yeah you do not want to be running yeah. out in the open while the mobile army is like hmm yeah. i'm just gonna charge you now like even, even if you don't have woodland creature you know against a mobile army you're gonna want to dive into the forest yes uh, yeah so if you're a, a leaf blower list, you more more than likely you probably have some form of uh, march, like some character with heroic march. Don't be afraid to burn all their might heroic marching like sections of your force across open terrain, especially against a mobile army, because you never want to be in open terrain against a mobile army. It will chew you up, especially because leaf blower is generally low defense. Uh, and yeah, you'll get chewed up fairly quickly. All right, Andrew. Give us your tips and tricks to getting a mega win in domination. Ooh, the mega win. All right, so first off, like we talked about already, is the break. The break we did. is everything, okay? This is how you push yourself from a 6-point win to a 10 or 12-point win, okay? And it's not necessarily the break, but it's like the break is when sort of the clock starts for you like okay they're broken this is the time where i go for all of the objectives yes i have until 25 percent and to do it remember because the break doesn't refer to just your opponent breaking it could be you breaking and we'll get to that strategy a little bit later um but it's essentially when one of you breaks um that is you've kind of got like between that 50 percent and 25 percent right so what when you or your opponent are at 50 percent and then you get to 25 percent and you immediately trigger the end game condition um that timing is really the time you have to grab objectives or to flip objectives and again objective flipping could be flipping an objective um, from your opponent's control to your control and it could also be um, taking a contested objective in your control and clearing out all of your enemies within three inches so therefore it becomes totally in, in, in your control so that's kind of that flipping piece and you really have to be cognizant or aware of um, how fast you're killing your opponent and when the break is going to happen because you want to make sure your models are kind of in position to start like the mass run or uh, maneuver to grab as many backfield objectives as they can you know, given their you know, mobility uh, options um, and the best way you're going to do that is if you know how many models your opponent is to break and how many you are to break but also how many more models you need to kill to force your opponent from break to quartered and how many more models you need to lose to go from break to quartered because I'll tell you right now I have seen people go from break to quartered in a single turn that's how fast it can go so it's really important that you are watching how many models are dying how fast you're killing your opponent how fast they're killing you and influencing those factors so that you arrive at the ideal spot if you have a Courage 2 army and you want the game to end and you were just broken, it's really easy for you to end the game mm -hmm. quickly, like in one turn. Like you mentioned before, I think, like just don't use any of your standfasts. 
yeah. right there. Like you're gonna lose, you're probably gonna lose enough models in one turn to uh, end the game. Yeah, I mean, like we'll just jump right now into forcing the break, and it's you could be in a scenario where you are holding two backfield objectives, you are contesting three front field objectives, right? Like let's say your opponent's uh, triangling, and you're currently holding two backfield, you're contesting the three in the front, and you're actually up on points. Like you've got three in the front, you've got four in the back, that's seven. Um, your opponent's sitting on one potentially for breaking you, right? And you have an opportunity to hit their leader. Now you could say to yourself at this point, like, I don't think I'm going to be able to hold these three objectives, these three front field objectives for very long, right? He's going to, my opponent's going to grind me down, right? And I just have no chance at um, holding it. And all of a sudden I feel like the winds are changing and, um, I need to end this game quickly. Now, this isn't for a mega win, but it is for pulling a loss, um, pulling a win out of a loss. And what you can say there is, you know what? I'm going to force a break on myself immediately. And how do I do that? Things like stabbing, things like fainting in duels to reduce fight value, especially if you have higher fight value. Um, piercing striking, especially when you have lower fight value, because you stab and you pierce when you have lower fight value if you want to die, right? Because stab forces a strength to hit upon yourself and pierce lowers your defense so your opponent can kill you faster, okay? Uh, the other piece is if you really want to go crazy with it, just start putting your models prone. Your opponent will think, what the heck is going on? He'll charge in. He'll kill you because you're all trap models and all of a sudden you force the break, right? And then once you force the break, you just don't stand fast with anybody. That way you can force a quartering immediately or what you can do is you can start rolling for models and once you've hit the requisite amount of models to quarter yourself, that's when you activate your stand fast to keep the rest of the models still on the table and... Um, you may use um, the next um, piece of inf uh, information, the other tidbit or uh, tactic, tip or tactic, uh, of you know if you've got might left over, that's when you can uh, ramp up your killing power um, of your because you're broken, but you can still use your heroes to ramp up their killing power. That way, you can hold on to those contested objectives in the triangle. And so again, it's this idea of. Breaking doesn't always mean you're going to lose the game in domination. Breaking actually could mean that you're going to win the game if the game ends at the quarter. So how do I get there and how do I quarter myself? And these are kind of the ways you do it. And so that's how you would do it if you're on the verge of breaking. Now, if you're, let's say, on the verge of breaking your opponent and let's say you break them and you say to yourself, oh, geez, I'm not anywhere near... Um, um, in the positions I need to be to grab um, those objectives, those backfield objectives. So what do I do? Because you want the game to continue longer now. Exactly. So so if you catch yourself like maybe five or six or seven models um, away from break or even away from quarter um, and you have your trusty warrior with a shield, guess what? Start shielding. Do not attack. Use. Do not open yourself up to... Um, to killing your opponent. You could also use any other non-lethal strikes, so like stun, right? Or bash. Like if you've got weapons that can stun, like bash or, or, or a stun, all of a sudden I'm like, I've got my, my Maddox hammer, um, Erebor dwarf, I'm just gonna bash you. 
because I can't kill you. It doesn't, it's irrelevant whether I knock you down or not, but I'm just going to bash you because that way I don't kill you, right? Or I'll just shield, that way you won't die. Because sometimes mm-hmm. wiping out your opponent doesn't help you out, especially on the quarter, okay? Because I know there's a, an objective or there's no there's a, a rule in the rule book that says if you wipe out your opponent, you win the game, even though you may have less VPs in them. Well, there is a, another mission too where you get additional VPs for quartering your opponent. Exactly. So those missions where quartering automatically ends the game, that's not the, the, the wipeout scenario you, you want to play with because um, you, you can't. Like you can't knock someone from a quarter to zero. Uh, the odds of you pulling that off are very low. Okay. Um, so the goal here is I need to pump the brakes and slow down, especially if I'm hammering my opponent very quickly. And this is also the part where you take a look at the clock, okay? Because if you find yourself on the verge of breaking your opponent and there's like an hour left in like an, like an, like an hour and a half game, slow it down. You have so much time on your hands to be able to just um, shield as much as you can, run out and grab as many backfield objectives as you can. And you'll notice that when your opponent breaks, they may actually try to just run off the table by not using standfast. And your objective in that scenario is, I need to call heroic moves or win the priority, and I need to start tagging as many models as possible so that when I shield, they're automatically engaged. Um, they can't fail a stand fast, and that way I'm keeping as many models on the table as I can. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Now, we jumped over this, and I'm going to dive back into it. Now, we're calling this, I'm calling it the probability of success method. And what this essentially means is you have your army, right, that's on the table, and your opponent is on the verge of breaking, okay? And at that point, you need to say to yourself, how do I grab as many, um, get as many points as possible? And you're going to use the probability of success method, wherein you always want to assign this largest portion of your army to the highest probabilities of success, right? Because you're going under this belief that, because you're going under this belief of how many turns do I, do I think I'm going to have from the moment I break my opponent to the moment they get quartered and the game ends, okay? And that's your idea. The more turns, which which means there the less probability that you'll actually, uh, you'll the, the more turns there are, the less probable that scenario will be, right? So you're going to allocate smaller and smaller portions to uh, less probable things. So the most probable being I need to hold the objectives that I have and ideally I need to flip them so that I control all of them completely. Okay, so I need to dedicate the largest portion of that to that, um, that outcome. And that will also have the highest probability of success, right? Because I'm just moving models around to stand on objectives. Cool, that 100% success rate on doing that, okay. But what I also want to do is I want to start sending out models to grab backfield objectives, okay? Depending upon how far you are from those objectives relative to where your models are, your probability of success can go, can start dropping, right? Like if you're one or two turns away, well, your probability of success is actually pretty good because you can use those other tactics of um, pumping the brakes, slowing down your kills to drag the game out, right? But if you're looking at three, four, five turns for to get some of your models onto those objectives, that's the point where you want to send the least amount of models possible because you know the probability of success is so infinitesimally low. Like your, your goal is still to try to pull it off, but 
if you allocate too much resources to something that has such a low probability of success, it may impact the other um, out, outcomes you're trying to achieve, right? So for example, if I take 60% of my army and say, I'm just gonna hold these three objectives, cool. And then I'm gonna take 30% of my army and I'm just gonna try to wound the enemy leader, okay? Because I need that point. That leaves me with 10% of my army left. Well, I'm gonna send them out to see if I can grab some backfield objectives because that could flip me huge VPs, right? Because um, I could grab two backfield objectives, I could flip them and get four more VPs, which would be fantastic. But if I said to myself, you know what? I'm only gonna keep 30% of my army to do hold my existing objectives. I'm gonna do 20% of my army to wound my opponent's leader. And I'm gonna send 50% of my army to grab those backfield objectives because I'm like, well, that's four VPs. That's huge. But the problem is in doing that, the odds of you grabbing those backfield objectives is not the greatest. And if you're sending like half your army to do it, what could end up happening is the probability of success of holding your own objectives when your opponent breaks could actually start plummeting. And with some bad dice rolls, you actually could lose the game as a result. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I like the, the idea. I like the idea of sending, you know, one or two models downfield to try and get backfield objectives, even though, you know, it may seem unlikely at the time. But it is important to have models like if you can afford the models, yeah. it is important to have models on their way to those objectives, because when the break happens, like I could be sending one model to to an objective where three enemy models are holding it, let's say. Mm -hmm. But when the enemy mo when the enemy army breaks, like two of those models could suddenly disappear. And then you're looking at my one model fighting an enemy model. Exactly. Right? And that's enough to you know, that's enough to completely contest that objective and nobody's gonna get any points from it, even if nobody dies. Agreed. And that's one of the challenges with horde armies, and the reason why you as a non horde army want to break them is because their low courage models may run off backfield objectives and what seems what it, and what it seems like I'm oh my god I'm going to lose this game by big numbers I may actually win it by big numbers yeah no. and like you may not be able to flip as you say an objective but you could reduce an objective from the enemy getting 2 points to the enemy getting 1 point agreed by no just points. getting a model within 3 inches of it that's just yeah. enough to flip a vp now yeah. that, you know to to continue on with this idea of uh, you know probabilities of success and sending models out we're going to dive into two more concepts here. Cavalry. If you have small amounts of cavalry, and we're not talking mobile, if you have small amounts of cavalry in your army, write off any thought of using your cavalry um, to kill models. That is not their purpose for this game. Those two to five cavalry models you have in your army, they're not designed to kill models. You shouldn't even be using them for that. What you should be using them for is when your opponent breaks, you send those cab models off to grab backfield objectives. Because 10 mm -hmm. inches of movement, oh my gosh, it means I could sometimes jump on a backfield objectives in two turns versus three. And if I know the game won't go three turns, I just flipped and just grabbed two VPs, or I may have re reduced my opponent's VP total by, by one by contesting their objective or flipping it. And just having those two or three cav, I, there are so many games I have had where three cavalry for me almost invariably gets used to play the mission versus cause damage, and I score so many more VPs out of those cav than I do anything else in my army. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. That's whenever you build an army and you're throwing your two or three uh, cav or even wargs or anything like that. It's those guys are in there for for playing the mission. Absolutely. Now, and the other component to this is let's talk might. Okay, moves, marches, and springboards. All right. So most you know aggressive armies, right? And we're talking again. We're talking your, your shield ball. We're talking. We're talking pretty much anyone at this point. They 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 like to use their their might um, in many cases to do heroic combats. Uh, certain army types will do heroic combats and that kind of thing. And their goal is to grind down and break their opponent as fast as possible. Okay. In domination, you don't always want to do that. Uh, again, because we're talking about this idea of of pumping the brakes, of getting that that hitting your opponent's break at a certain point in time wise, as well as positioning wise in a game. But the other piece is you don't want to burn all your might out doing that. Okay. And the reason for this is might becomes critical to improving your probability of success for those long bombs, those run to the backfield objectives. And it's done in three different ways. Way number one, heroic moves. If you have might and your opponent doesn't and they're broken, you can call a heroic move and tag as many of your opponent's models as possible to prevent them from quartering themselves by not using their standfasts. Okay? Two, marches. If you have a hero with a heroic march, especially on a mount, them being able to call a heroic march um, and not calling it with me, just calling it on their own, and take off 15 inches in the direction of a backfield objective means almost invariably you're going to grab it in two turns. Okay? And three is the springboard. And almost everyone knows this. It's where, like, um, you have a model that does a heroic combat, um, kills the first guy, jumps 12 inches into another model. Cool, right? Or, or 10 inches or 8 inches or whatever the thing is. Okay? Um, but the springboard in this case is, is if you've planned your break, when you're breaking your opponent, right to like the model or to the turn, what you can do is you can position a hero so that when they get a heroic combat, instead of diving into your opponent, they just take off 10 inches in the direction of an objective. And then if they yeah, because ideally, like you can you can charge 10 inches into yeah. a model, and then heroic combat, and then move another 10 inches towards the objective. Exactly. And so all of a sudden what happens is you do that springboard, you get that free 10 inch movement to the direction of your objective. If you've got March or not, you could be 10 or 15 inches the next turn onto that objective. And 25 inches away, generally speaking, you're on an objective. Okay. And you're doing that in one turn. So even if your opponent quarters that next turn, you have a hero on an objective. And so the springboard is key. So having that might available and knowing when you're going to break your opponent will allow you to just start shooting heroes off in different directions to start grabbing points. Now, you have to be careful with this because, again, that whole idea of probability of success, if you throw too many heroes off to grab backfield objectives in this this manner, um, you may weaken yourself on your core objectives that you're controlling, and your opponent can then flip them, causing you to lose the game. Yeah, so it's definitely something that you have to be, you have to be very careful about and and weigh the uh, situation. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into um, you know, real quickly into objective placement. So we've talked about the triangling, right? We went to death about that, right? Uh, we've also talked about opposite ends. Okay, um, we've talked briefly about terrain, and it's really it's about 
um, using um, the terrain to hinder mobile armies and putting objectives in terrain. Remember, you have to put them on the bit in the bottom floor, but if you're putting your objectives in terrain against mobile armies, they can't get at them, and it allows you to sort of create like a little defensive bunker, especially if you've got shooting. Okay. Or even like large models with large bases as well, maybe not yes. able to get to it. Yeah. So that's also something you can do. This isn't Dungeons and Dragons. There's no such thing as squeezing. If you can't push a model through, it literally can't go through. Okay. Um, there's also the piece on being aggressive. Okay. And when you're being aggressive, we also talked about that. We talked about this idea of if you're playing a mobile opponent, what if I throw my two objectives into, into my opponent's deployment zone? And then I just aggressively push into my opponent's deployment zone to grab those two objectives. All of a sudden, that will throw your opponent off and they'll be like, oh God, I have to charge these models to prevent him from getting too much board control onto my side. But what it also does, especially against a mobile army, is it takes a game that's a 4x4 board and transforms it into a 2x4 board, right? Because it's like all the objectives are on your side of the table. There's no point going into the back. No one's, no one's, no, there's nothing, there's nothing of value back there. So your opponent flanking you isn't going to do them a tremendous amount, right? And if you can score a, a triangled position in your opponent's deployment zone while within, you know, 15 or 20 inches of their, their two objectives, that puts you in a really good spot. And a lot of people don't go with the aggressive deployment zone maneuver. Um, something to consider, especially against mobile armies. And, yep. Yeah, and I think like yeah. you know that that's one where your your last placement, like the very last objective placed, if it's if it's yours, that's where you can use that strategy the most because your opponent will have already placed their two objectives probably in in on the side of the table that they're standing on, mm -hmm. and then you've placed one like maybe close to the center, and you have the last drop. You can put it actually on the opposite side of the table that you're standing on. Yeah. And so there is effectively three on one side, one in the middle, and one on the other side. Yeah. You could also do um, place your first objective for your triangle on the middle line, 12 inches away. And mm -hmm. then your opponent's going to think, okay, maybe he'll put his, third his second objective on yeah. his side. And then this especially works when you're going second for objective placement. Okay. Um, and then what you can do is for your last objective, to Don's point, you just throw it on your opponent's side. He's n and they're not going to expect it. Like oh, okay, you're just you're rushing at me, and this is really good against a mobile army, and it's especially good for armies that are slow. And I'm referring to yeah. dwarves because they don't have to go very far. I just walk ten yeah. inches up. Cool. Yeah, you just cut the table size in half. Excellent. Yeah, which dwarves love to do. Cool. I have to move less distance to get to stuff. I love it. Um, and then the last one is kind of being disruptive, and we're gonna get into this. It goes very much into the deployment swap. Okay. And this is the one Dawn hates. Um, and this is, remember, because objectives get placed before your roll for deployment zones, right? So um, I could place objectives um, in a way that's advantageous for me, especially if I'm a horde or a mobile army, but it's dis disadvantageous for other army types. And I could then, if I win the deployment zone, I could then flip 
I could switch deployment zones and go on your side of the table where your objectives are advantageous for me regardless, but I put you in a really bad position. Now, this happened to me, and I played a, played a, game, played a game against Ronan in a 500-point, I think it was five or 600-point mission, where I brought my um, Gondor uh, mishmash back in the old days when you could do a Gondor horde for, for cheap. And he brought his Goblin Town horde, and he did that. I, I placed my objectives. I triangled. I was in good placement. Uh, and then he placed his objectives six inches from one side of the table edge, six inches from the other. We rolled deployment zones. Uh, he won. He then took my table edge. And I realized at that point I was screwed. And I broke him two turns from the game ending. And that was it. Um, I was always playing an uphill battle. And I never could score more than one or two objectives. And he handedly took the game for me. So, Yeah. Always be mindful of that, depending upon who you're playing and what army they're playing. Yeah, good idea. Because I know a lot of like when I play, um, you know, I don't I don't focus on on this kind of depth of tactical thinking. So like a lot of the time when people that are sort of casual about it, like me, it's just like, are you good on that side? Yes. Are you good on this side? Yes. Okay. And then you just place your objectives, right? Like the idea of switching table sides is like, you mean I have to like pick up all my stuff and move to the other side of the table? Yes. yes. <laughs> no, nah, I'll just give you the advantage. It's quite all right. <laughs> now, we thought, Don thought that was bad. Now we're going to talk about the rather contentious pulling the jank oh this is this is all you oh yes so pulling <laughs> the jank now this can apply in this mission it can apply in every mission deployment zones are not defined unless they have been defined by the to are not defined as where you stand on the table and where your opponent stands nowhere in the mission pack does it state um, if I'm standing on a four, uh, on which side of the four foot by four foot, this is deployment zone A, and that's deployment zone B. The deployment zones could be any table edge, okay? Which means if I'm standing at my table and it's a row of tables and all the gamers are set up, I could say, you know what, the deployment, the the table edge to my left. Not Let's go mine. north, south, east, west. Sure. It's easier. So. If my opponent was sitting at the north-facing table, the north side of the table, and I'm at the, the south side, most people just play that as that's where the deployment zones are. But I could say, you know what? I'm going to take the west side as my deployment zone, and you have the east side. That is a valid choice, which means you're deploying your you know, models uh, to your left, and you're having to reach across both sides of the table, and your opponent's doing the same to the right. And why this is so critical is because almost nobody expects this. So when you're placing your objectives, be very mindful that your opponent could pull this on you. So if you place all your objectives on the right-hand side of, uh, of your right-hand side, your opponent could say, I will take the east side of the deployment. Uh, east, east, I'll make the east uh, board edge my deployment zone. And you have the west. And what could have ended up happening there is all of a sudden they could have three or maybe even all five objectives in their deployment zone. And you could have none. And if you're playing against a horde army, you've just lost 12 nothing. So, yeah, be mindful of that. Centrally placed objectives are not a bad thing. Um, and if you see your opponent 
Or if you see um, your opponent placing all their objectives onto one quarter of the, like, like, like on the east side or on the west side, uh, and you sneak an objective onto your west side, don't consider that to be a bad choice to flip the deployment zones because all of a sudden you could be sitting with three or four objectives in your deployment zone uh, and your opponent could be totally gobsmacked and reeling from it and all of a sudden before a single die roll is rolled but sorry before a single model is placed you've immediately stolen momentum so yes it's called pulling the jank almost no one does it and your opponent will not like you for it but you put you in a good position to take a 12 in. Yeah, I guess it could. But it's like, I've never actually had somebody do that. I know you haven't. I only know about this because... Uh, no, I've actually done this once. It was not... I don't think it was domination. It was something else. Uh, but it was mostly because um, the terrain on the deployment zone screwed me. Like, where I was standing, the, the terrain was so bad... And I'm like, well, the terrain placement on the my, my left or the west side was really good for me. I'm like, okay, I'll make the, le- the west side my deployment zone. My opponent was <laughs> totally surprised, but it totally yeah. changed how terrain is set up for me. And that's a tip or trick that's going to go for you for almost every mission you play. If the terrain isn't set up well for you and you get that role for deployment zone, um, look to see which deployment zone you want to be. That's not only two. There are four deployment zones. Yeah, it's certainly a, certainly a different approach. Um, yeah, I don't know how I would react if my opponent did that, to be quite honest. It'd be, I would certainly be shocked. Right? And yeah, it's all about stealing that momentum. And sometimes you can steal it just by throwing a little shock move. So yeah. <laughs> all right. And that's how we love to end our segments, on how we can pull a jank. <laughs> pull the jank. <laughs> right on. Okay. All right, let's do some all that is gold does not glitter because we have a email in from uh, the ever reliable Mike Shock and he says, "Hey fellas, mm-hmm. I finally had a chance to finish up the episode on big heroes and noted your discussion on Aragorn quote making his points back unquote." Shy of mowing a big hero and a troll or two down, he's almost never going to do it. In fact, lots of characters in the game won't make their points back in a game, not in a literal one-to-one sense. Is it actually useful to think about making your points back on certain units or heroes? If not, when should we overlook this factor? Looking forward to getting back to rolling the dice again this month. So that's his question. Mm. Um, essentially, is it actually useful to think about making your points back on certain units or heroes? If not, when should we overlook this factor? Uh, I think it's always critical to be looking at points efficiency with your models. Um, and I think it's, it's never about... Um, looking at that points efficiency from the perspective of um, models killing models. It could also be mm-hmm. models um, delaying models, um, and it could also be models incapacitating models. And I'll give three examples here. Um, so for, oh, here come the examples. Here from the examples. Uh, example one, Sauron. 
Sauron is a model that costs, what, 350, 400 points? I don't know what his new points value is because I never use him. Um, he only will make his points back if he's hero hunting, and he does it very well. And you literally should not be using Sauron to kill infantry. It's an absolute waste of his points. So you need to be using him for hero hunting because, one, he's a monster. Two, he's strength eight. And three, I think he's got three or four attacks. Again, it tells you how often I use him. Um, and from my discussion with very good players who have used him, they found the really the only way to make his uh, get a value out of him is to absolutely go hero hunting. So there's some heroes where you literally should just be using them to hunt heroes because that's really the only way of making their points back, right? So this yeah, is that, that one-to-one relationship. Like, for example, yeah. the Balrog. Yes, the Balrog has free heroic combats, but the Balrog is also 350 points. You should be throwing, again, I could be wrong. I'm not staring at my Moria Codex. It could be 300 to 350 points. But you should be trying to use the Balrog to whip um, heroes into combat with you, especially over your own battle line, so that you can then kill them in combat. Um, that is the best way to use the Balrog to gain his points back on a one-to-one. -one. And then mm -hmm. once you've mowed down two or three heroes, absolutely be using your heroic comp, your free hero combats to start mowing down infantry. Like So there's some heroes where Azog is a third example of the one-to-one -one ratio. Azog has an ability that lets him kill enemy heroes very quickly. He should yeah, he be... Yeah, he like wounds them on a three plus or something, doesn't he? Right, exactly. He wounds him on a 3+, plus. he has the heavy flail if you're going to go with the Azog Legion version, right? Which does the D3 wounds, but it can only ever get above fight 6. Um, and so it can only ever be at fight 6, sorry. Uh, and it, it's a two-handed weapon, so it lets him go burly. Well, you can use the flail and have him, I believe, wound heroes on 2s. Because there's the FAQ that came out that talked about Anduril always wounding on fours, and uh, Aragorn can go two-handed with Anduril and wound on threes. So it stands to reason that Azog, who always wounds on threes, can go two-handed and wound on twos. Um, mm -hmm. So, but but Azog costs because of the white warg costs I think like two forty something like that with heavy armor and, and flail. And so you really want him killing heroes as quickly as possible because he has that special rule that allows him to kill um, heroes on threes, um, yeah. right? And he's also fight seven. So he gets over that, that nasty fight six hump because when you're fight six, yes, you can strike up to 10 like Aragorn can, right? Aragorn, King Elisar yeah, yeah. especially. But it's a 50-50 chance, right? Which isn't the greatest, especially if you want Aragorn to go hero hunting against other creatures like Gilgalad or any of the elves, for example. Whereas with Azog, he's already at fight 7. It's a 67% chance to get to fight 10. Stands to reason he's going to hit it, right? Like, that, that's good yeah, odds. It's one to of get those there. ones that, like, it forces might out of uh, heroes to strike. Um, but, like, like, later game, you can go after heroes that maybe have gassed themselves of all their might. And, you know, if uh, unlikely they're going to be strength or fight 7. So, you know, you, you've got it in the bag. You're, you have an advantage in the dual row. Mm -hmm. You're probably, if you're still mounted, you're getting lots of attacks. Yep. And if you win, you're, you're rolling to wound on a 3. Exactly. Right. Um, then there's... The heroes like Aragorn. Yes, could Aragorn go after heroes and kill them? Absolutely. But then again, Aragorn can go after everything and kill it. Yeah. Um, but then again, we talked about Aragorn in our top tier heroes um, build, where we actually talked about how Aragorn 
doesn't always want to go hero hunting initially. He yeah, yeah. Let me jump in here. Let no, me have here, a go turn for it, at go this. Go for it. Go for it. So I, I think we we did actually say like make their points back. So I think probably that was the wrong phraseology to mm. use. It probably would have been better to say something like earn their keep rather than make their points back. Certainly if you can make your points back, you know, on a one-to-one -one ratio, it's easier to figure out that you probably, you know, did your job in the game. But like often the goal of a big hero um, is to kill enemy warriors as quickly as possible to break the other army. Like, this is a very common strategy, probably one of the most common strategies. Mm -hmm. It's like, so you may only kill 100 points of warriors with a character that's worth 150 points. Um, so technically, you didn't make your points back on a one-to-one, -one, but you will probably have done your job and participated in breaking the enemy army really quickly. So mm -hmm. in that sense, you know, they did earn their keep, but maybe did not make their points back. And, you know, as you were probably about to say with Aragorn, like sometimes um, like we talk about forcing a big hero to remain inactive for one or more turns, you know. Um, so, so so a hero like um, Gorolf uh, or, uh, or Durin or uh, any of these characters that are very difficult to kill mm -hmm. um so like it's so important because it literally takes time off the clock of the of the other hero so mm -hmm. if you can force them to even though you're not actually getting something off the table you're forcing um an expensive hero that your opponent has paid for to essentially not kill anything that turn right so yeah, so we'll jump to this point and then I'll jump back real quick to the um, to, to your other point that you made at the beginning, which is the killing the warriors piece. Um, there is a reason why I always take heroes with heroic defense. Always, um, I think heroic defense is um, just as valuable as heroic strike, like one hundred percent. Like the two of them, I see them on par, and that's because. A lot of the times, the armies you'll play against, especially at the top tables, will have a big hero or will have a collection of, 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 of strong heroes. And if you don't have magic or some other way of incapacitating them, dismounting them, something, you need to throw a hero with heroic defense at them and stall them for, you know, mm -hmm. two or three turns. Um, yeah. And because, like, like, take, for example, an Aragorn or a Gorolf Ironskin, right? They're going to run up to try to engage a big hero, let's say an Aragorn or a Gilgalad, okay? Generally speaking, most games have between six and seven combat rounds, tops. Like there's a couple rounds of moving and positioning, but generally six to seven turns, depending upon time limits, that they're happening, that there's a, um, like a the combat's actually happening, like line-on-line -line clashing, mm -hmm. okay? So if a Gorolf Ironskin or a Faramir runs into a Gilgalad or an Aragorn and just goes heroic defense and lasts for two or three turns before they die, you've just stalled a big hero for half of those combat turns. They are never going to make their points back, quote-unquote. They're never going to be as efficient as they should be because Aragorn needs to be breaking the enemy by killing their troops as fast as possible. Yeah. By stalling him out for three turns, he cannot do that. So if I were to look at a Goral for a Faramir, I would say they didn't make their points back on a one-to-one. -one, but it's about... Uh, when I look at this, I, I don't see... 
and maybe this is the confusion here with, with the wording I'm using, is that I see um, that being a 100% them making their points back if they stalled out an Aragorn, if they completed a specific objective that allowed me to win a game. I see that immediately as you made your points back. Um, oh, absolutely. And so uh, to your point about heroes killing infantry, um, there are specific heroes I would absolutely say um, should be hunting infantry, like most mid-tier heroes, absolutely. Uh, and any heroes that have free heroic combats, I'm talking Bard, I'm talking Thorin, uh, I'm talking Elendil, I'm talking Aragorn, because he has the free heroic free might. Because they have the free heroic combats, absolutely they should be murdering infantry as fast as possible. Yeah, because like they even, can do even a guy like Maher for Isengard, you know, he's he's a, a cheaper hero for, mm -hmm. for Isengard, but he, he comes with three attacks, he's fight five and strength five. He doesn't get any free heroics, um, so he's not going to do anything spectacular, but he is going to grind the enemy infantry down, and he doesn't have to kill very many to make his points back in that yep. case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, look, let's look at Maher for a minute here. He's got three attacks. He's going to have a spear support or pike support for that four. Probably going to have a banner around him. That's five attacks. He could comfortably charge um, uh, two models in a, in a line that have spear supports each. He has yep. more attacks, effectively, four dice plus the reroll, so that's five dice in the duel. He generally will have higher fight value, which means the odds are always going to, almost always going to be in his favor to win the fight. And he's strength five with three dice, which means even if he doesn't kill both of them, he's still at least tied two models up. Yeah, and, and just you, you did clarify it there, but yes, I just know. like Garrett has has been on us about this, and that is we always refer to a banner as contributing an extra attack, which technically it doesn't. It provides a reroll, but mm -hmm. effectively it is the same as an extra attack because you're gonna have a dice that is the lowest mm -hmm. unless you roll all of them the same number, yes. and so effectively it is. You can look at it as an extra attack, although it is not. So yes, I have been I have been um, corrected on this and when you're rolling dice in the dual roll it is just really the number of dice you're rolling in the dual roll and in, in, in this particular scenario it's four yeah. dice plus uh, Maher has three there's a spear support and there's also um, the banner re-roll so effectively you get five dice in the dual roll not five All right. Be before you remember what you were talking about let me add something else it just came yes. to me while you were talking and that was you were talking about heroic defense and how much you think it's as good as strike and, yes. and so on and so on and I do as well. I think it's just as valuable as strike for certain models. And it's obviously, you know, it's about not having your guy killed rather than kill something. So it's it's mm -hmm. the opposite side of the coin, obviously. But the thing I really like about defense is if you have a character or a hero, sorry, that has a reasonably high defense, um, you don't have to use, you don't have to call heroic defense every round of combat against a big hero. Like generally mm -hmm. what I do is if I get charged by a mounted hero, I call heroic defense. Yeah, okay? that's a good point. If I get priority and I charge that hero, I just will call nothing because they're probably not going to kill you in a single round when they're not knocking you down. Depending upon strength and wound characteristics. Yeah, yeah, yeah like I totally agree with you. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. you know, essentially, like, let's say you're dealing with a hero that has three points of might and you win half of the priorities. You could last six turns. He charges, you call defense. Mm -hmm. You charge, you do not call defense, and so on, and so on, and so yeah. on, and so on. Right? So, doing that, it, it really stretches out that combat. Agreed. 
Um, and then just to, to quickly jump over to sort of like the really cheapy heroes. Now I'm talking, you know, Gorolf is, is a mid-tier hero at 70 points, 65, 70 points, 70 mm-hmm. points, I think. Uh, yes. But then there's also Groblog and Derbers for Moria, right? And people look at them and they say, well, they're, they're so-and-so. I look at Groblog, who's 50 points, and I say, this is a guy who's got three might and heroic defense. I look at Derbers and I say, he's a guy with, th- with three might and heroic defense, and he's 70 points. I said, well, if you're building a Moria list, they're not your hitters. Your hitters are your watchers in the water, your dwellers, anything else that's in the list, right? And so what you want to use them, you can use them as blockers where it's like my watcher in the water is going to attack this hero, but this other hero is going to come and try to to peel my watcher. I'm going to use Derbers, throw them into that hero, call a heroic defense. I've now hero blocked this person and my watcher can do their thing. And it's like... When you're looking at it from that perspective, when you're taking these these cheap heroes, relatively cheap anyways, that have heroic defense that aren't your killing power of your army, you are then using them to hero block to allow your killing power to do its thing. Yeah. And like you talked about, um, you know, uh, melee combat lasting for, say, six or seven turns in a game. And like, you know, I've used Gorolf a couple of times to great effect, like, stopping heroes that are like twice his point values for that entire period of time yeah you know it's it's unbelievable how hard it is to get through the guy and so that's actually the other point i wanted to make which is when you're looking at it from the one-to-one ratio if and this applies to also spellcasters uh, which is why models like Gandalf and Saruman are terrible, generally speaking, at some Yeah, they'll never get their points back. Like, because, and we'll get to this, because they almost never lock down a model of equivalent or higher points value to them, right? Um, and I'm referring to, like, Gorolf charges into, let's say, an Azog, right? Calls heroic defense. Six turns, Azog whiffs like crazy, doesn't do anything. Gorolf made his points back. He didn't kill anything, but he stalled a 240-point model, and he's 70 points. I easily made my points back there, tripled my points in value, pretty much, right? Whereas Gandalf, one of the reasons why we talked about Gandalf and Saruman aren't as good is because Gandalf and Saruman are between 170 and 190 points, right? Uh, Before Grima for Saruman. Like, mm-hmm. there aren't very many models in the game at, you know, the six to 800 point level that are that amount of um, that amount of points that don't have mm-hmm. some kind of spell protection. But when you're diving into the thousand point level, those models become valuable because one, Saruman and, and, and uh, Gandalf can almost always find a big hero at a thousand points that's more valuable than they are points wise and they'll just yeah. bomb that model with transfixes all game and mm-hmm. I made my points back because I'm taking more points of your army out of the game without having to kill anything but it's not killing my army or you're indirectly like supporting your army with you know blinding light or or what have yeah. you so and, and, th- and that's the last piece i think um and that is the indirect supports or the utility supports um while at the same time you're like well there's not a one-to-one points value i'm like if you really want to crunch it down you could find that where it's like hey guess what gandalf cast blinding light on my army i'm now going to shoot my opponent who actually is way better at shooting than i am but I actually have the strategy where I can stand still and shoot. That wasn't an option before. So I no longer have to um, play to their tempo 
um, because I have inferior shooting, so I have to rush them so I can avoid getting taken out. Uh, now I have blinding light, and I'm like, no, you have inferior shooting now, so I'm just going to shoot you. And so these are things like between that, there's also Kirdan's Aura of Dismay, uh, which causes terror. All of a sudden, I'm stopping models from being able to charge, and there's sort of like a points value there because it's like, now I'm controlling the tempo of the game on my own, or I'm stopping models from charging my models and killing them. And so you can start seeing, like, if I stop seven models from charging and they could have killed five of my guys, that's like 50 points right there. You know what I mean? So, yeah, well, like what you're saying, like these spellcasters, they they give, they come with like tactical flexibility and, and, and that directly relates to points efficiency. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and it's just, it's complicated to actually figure it out, but it is right. there. It is there. It's complicated to figure out. Um, but, you know, essentially at the end of the game, at the end of the day, this is a numbers game, right? Whether that's probabilities. Um, but if you can always distill points values down, like, like actions down to points values, um, you can then always determine whether units you have are efficient or not. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of how you can empirical, empirically determine whether, you know, a Faramir is better than a Huron. Um, and I'm of the opinion that I would choose a Huron or a Faramir over a Huron in many cases just due to Faramir's tactical flexibility on the battlefield. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Um, so, well, I'll end this off by reading a follow-up email from Mike that he sent. Um, like a few days or a week later. Mm -hmm. um, so Mike again, as an addendum to my last email, I played my first game in about 21 months yesterday what? at 500 points in preparation for this month's uh, OSBGL event. event. Mm -hmm. And Duran delivered about 10 Hunter Orc kills to me. That's only half of his points, but undoubtedly won me the game. So there you go. It's basically exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, on a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio, didn't make his his points back, but he did earn his keep. He played his he did his role in the game and contributed to the win. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, to me, when I see a hero contribute to a win or be critical in a win, i.e., causing a break. Um, yeah, to me, that's you made your points back, hundred yeah, percent. And another thing too is like when you're talking about points efficiencies and making points back or earning their keep. One of the things that's very hard to uh, relate to it is victory points. So like a hero like Durin, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the dwarf heroes is like you, you look at that hero and he's like wow it's like his killing power is just is not incredible like some of the other big heroes but what does kind of go unnoticed is that well your opponent will rarely get three points for killing your leader yeah if it's Durin. yeah um so it's it's not technically like you can't really look at it directly in in this context of making points back but that's certainly um part of the value of a hero like that agreed i mean if you were to look at say like the balrog in um you know the, the the legendary legion right there's if he prevents his army from breaking even though your opponent wipes out all the goblins and you don't break that's huge value to you right that adds to the balrog's um the points efficiency 
And then exactly. the last point is the, you know, you look at certain cavalry models, right? And they are, can be quite atrocious. Like the Knights of Minas Tirith are a terrible cavalry model. I'm sorry. Um, yes, they have a lance. Yes, they are defense six, but they're fight three. And generally, cavalry is supposed to be a shock assault unit. And a shock assault unit that hits an orc and loses combat and dies is pretty pretty terrible. So whenever I take them, I always see these are amazing models, not because they will kill enemy uh, enemies' units, but because they will contribute to my VP tally at the end of each game. And that's why they are amazing models. Yeah, they're cheap and they're highly mobile and mm-hmm. they have reasonable defense and yeah, the whole shebang. Yeah. So yeah. All right, let's move on to the next segment. Here we are for. TBD Chronicles, and it is Oathbound episode. I, I'm not sure, maybe six. Six, six yeah. yeah. And Andrew is up to bat. Uh, last episode, um, our duo of heroes um, survived a rainy night and mm-hmm. and then made their way to the orc-infested ruins where Garther um, weaseled him his way into a dwarven cache and recovered some some uh what was some food and mm-hmm. some armor and a helmet for himself for the upcoming fight and that's basically where we left it it was kind of a kind of a preparation a setup um, anticlimactic. So it was anticlimactic yeah okay fine <laughs> Had to be done, though. You know, come on, you can't just done. rush right into a fight. You know, you've got to get ready. <sighs> I guess, I guess. Okay, so part six of uh, Oathbound. Let's hear it. Okay. A long, soft exhale issued from Eliona's nose as she crossed her arms and stared warmly at Garther, as a mother would a child. She smiled and said, While I'm happy you're ready for battle, if we go in now, it's a death sentence. Let me scout the ruins first and come up, a pl- come up with a plan before we make our move. His eyes went hard as stone as she locked them with hers. Lass, I'll not play these tricks much longer. If you're going to scout, I expect to hear about orcs you've dispatched along the way. Eliona stared intently at him. Garther, if I kill any patrols, the orcs in the camp will know soon enough. This will make our task more difficult. He chuckled to himself, looking down at the ground before eyeing her with confusion. You're speaking about orcs here, lass. They're not that smart. He crossed his arms, mimicking hers, and continued. I won't hear anything of it. Kill the patrols, and then we will put axe to the orcs in the camp. Sighing deeply, Elioneth nodded before slipping away, fast as a shadow at dusk, moving through the paths between the crumpled buildings. Her footfalls made barely a sound, discernible only to elven ears. Her senses were alive in these moments. The human buildings around spoke of their fall. While the fires of war may have emptied these lands, it was age that withered the stone's beauty. Corroded structures, exposed to the elements both within and without, were now being consumed by nature. Moss and vines of vibrant greens covered everything. 
perfect for blending in and spying on our enemy, she thought. The ruins themselves were fairly ordered as she rounded the corner and spied wisps of smoke of the orcish camp in the near distance. As she crossed, crossed the large gap that separated each row of buildings, voices leapt unexpectedly from a bisecting large path three houses down to her right. Darting down a smaller overgrown path, she quickly pressed her body against the moss wall. Wrapping her cloak around her, her body blended into the surroundings and became one with the wall. The orcs passed not too long after, two of them idly chatting away in the foul speech of Mordor. Not understanding a word, she watched their body movements. The closer, smaller male, chewing away on the charred limb of a humanoid. An arm, perhaps? The further, a lankier male, laughed at what appeared to be a joke from the smaller. They moved carelessly, hands weaponless, bows stowed, and eyes aimlessly wandering. A complete lack of respect for the roles they had been assigned, she thought. Grumbling, she shook her head. Garthur will be the death of me, as she slid away from the wall, drawing her ikette and a throwing dagger. Both slid from their sheaths with nary a whisper, well-oiled and hungry for silent death. The dagger reverse-gripped and the ikette normal. Six steps away, she slowly and silently gained on them. The orcs continued down the large path, oblivious to her presence. Four steps. The shorter orc stopped and grumbled something to his friend. Elioneth paused mid-stride. Limbs angled forward in preparation to pounce, not tense, not frozen, like an amateur, poised like a practice killer. The lankier one shrugged and held out his arm for the haunch of meat. The shorter one obliged and headed off, right, to another small path between the buildings, to relieve himself, she thought. The lankier one absently chewed away on the meat, looking towards his friend as the smaller disappeared down the alley. Elioneth felt the vibrations of the smaller one's footfalls as she slowly moved towards the chewing orc. Two steps. She angled herself to strike from the orc's left, using his body to block the bladder-filled orc's field of view should he look her way midstream. One step. A faint stream could be heard echoing from the alley when Elioneth pounced, her Iket slid effortlessly up under the orc's ribs, on his left side, and into his lungs. The orc's lips opened, and a quick <gasps> sound was made as the air left his body. His eyes rolled back as the throwing dagger slid under his throat, and Elioneth dispatched him. The stream stopped abruptly, and a stillness enveloped the roadway. She heard the dying orc's heart last heartbeats, slowly thumped to conclusion as she let go of the Iket and quickly drew a second throwing dagger. With no counterbalance, the dead orc dropped to the ground. The silence was not broken by the body, but by a near indiscernible gasp that drifted from the path. Sliding a step to her left, her body aligned perpendicular to the main road, she spotted the orc and its eyes went wide. Her left arm pumped the first dagger out and the right quickly joined suit. Two daggers flew fast and true. The first slammed into the orc's gut, and as it rocked forwards, hunching slightly down, the second caught it in the throat. 
Fortune favored me tonight, she thought. The next strike should conceal my presence. Grabbing the lanky corpse, she dragged it on top of her friend in the gloomy path. Retrieving her weapons, she sped towards the orc camp. She didn't hold much faith in Garther's comments. Best move quickly and make sure the camp is scouted before the orcs are upon us, she thought. Dancing through the inky blackness of alleyways and side streets, Elioneth emerged a short while later within bowshot of the camp. Peering around the corner to her right, it sat in the intersection of two main streets, a couple of buildings away. She could hear orc voices as clear as day, but in the black speech she understood none of it. The tents surrounding the campfire were blocking her view, so she would need a better vantage point to scout the camp. Leaning back from the main path, she stepped into the building to her right, looking to get a bird's eye view of the camp instead. She walked through an inadvertent garden of flora and fauna. Mounds of fallen stone and other small debris blanketed in a carpet of dirt and life. The decayed stone walls made easy handholds as she flew up the wall and onto the remnants of the second floor. She fared worse than the first with barely a third of it standing. A far cry better than the night sky for a ceiling, though. She finished her last ascent and peered down in the orcs from the roof. Or what remained of the roof. Five of them mingled around the camp. Two sat beside the fire, tending it, while a third rotated a stocky-sized object on a spit over the open flame. She couldn't see the object very well, but it looked like there were limbs wrapped up, she thought. A fourth could be seen chopping food on a wooden log. The last was peering into the darkness of the main path as it led back to Garther. They laughed and talked freely. The sentry wasn't doing a very good job keeping watch. Looking back at the fire with hungry eyes, ruining his night sight, a rustle of noise came from the largest tent, and a silence descended upon the camp. Not one of respect, but fear. A large, bulky orc emerged, a full two heads taller than Elioneth, and three heads taller than Garther. This orc towered over the others, clad in full plate with a large mattock in one hand. Elioneth guessed this was Lagthrak. He bellowed something in the black speech. The orcs tending the fire stood upright and rigid, not daring to move. From her position, she could see their visibly trembling bodies as they shook their heads furiously. He menacingly stalked up to the closest. He menacingly stalked up to the one closest to the fire and screamed at the orc. The orc squealed and prostrated itself before Lagthrak. The act received a kick from their disgusted leader in turn. The orc yelped and spoke with such speed it sounded like a shrill call. Lagthrak turned to stare at the sentry, who immediately responded. Elioneth wished she hadn't disregarded her father's tutelage in the black speech right now. With a snap of his fingers, the orcs in the camp moved with surprising speed and efficiency. The fire was begrudgingly doused, blanketing the area in darkness. Elioneth squinted reflexively, crouching low on the top of the wall, reaching out her hands to balance herself, anxiety racing through her helpless body, visionless against her adversaries. Garther, you fool, I told you this would happen, she thought. 
She could not even tell him of the trap as she was blinded. She did not have the eyes of a dwarf or an orc, those accustomed to darkness. She needed more time to adjust to her surroundings. Tense moments passed, painfully slow, as shallow breaths passed over her lips. Her body froze with practice ease, keeping a low profile to blend in. The sound of the orcs heightened in her ears. A clattering of weapons retrieved from racks, arrows loaded into quivers, and shields clanging against drawn swords. Lagthrak broke the chaotic stillness of the moment with a startling proclamation. Come out, dwarf! We have almost finished feasting on your friends, and we need another meal. In perfect common, with all the correct inflections and intonations, something not even Garther did, she thought. Her eyes shot open wide as a pale clamminess took her hands. When she heard a shout from the distance, Aye, orc, I've come for your head. Face me. Oh, Garther, no, she panicked Elioneth. Her limbs moved of their own accord as she sprang across the gap between buildings. Her bow was drawn mid-flight. Purpose filled her mind as she stealthily danced along the top of the walls, boots finding their proper footing with each step. Creeping into position at the top of the wall, she looked down at Lagthrak and his entourage. Two of the orcs in the rear held bows drawn and and arrows knocked. Two flanked Lagthrak with sword and shield, and the fifth held a spear poised in support of his leader. Emerging from the opposite side of the street was Garther, clad in ringmail ring with his axe and shield, standing tall, fury emanated from his stocky form. He looked like a champion of the dwarven annals, ready to do battle against a horde of marauding orcs, except he would die this day without her aid. Unconsciously, her fingers felt the softness of the dwarven fletching as an arrow was drawn from her quiver. Her bowstring quickly pulled back and death released from her bow. The arrow slammed into the closest orcish archer. The angle of the shot allowed the arrowhead to pierce down through the collarbone. Before any others could react, she drew and loosed a second arrow, hitting the other archer in the chest square on. Eliona screamed, Oathbound! The flanking orcs spotted Elioneth and raised their shields to defend Lagthrak as the spear orc ran into the bottom floor of the building she was in. Lagthrak, Lagthrak turned his gaze upon her. There was a cunning in those eyes, a malicious intelligence far beyond a normal orc. Confusion and fear fought to dominate Elioneth's face as a spark of recognition crossed her eyes. Lagthrak smiled broadly. Well, aren't you far from home, little one? The orc closest to Elioneth, with shield raised against her, was unprepared for the onslaught of axe to neck. Garther's weapon took the orc's head with one swipe as both Lagthrak and the other orc turned to face him. Wrong opponent, orcs, come face death, for there is one dwarf left in these lands that still draws breath. Garther howled at the top of his lungs. Oathbound! That's it. All right. Go get him, Garther. You got this. He's got it. He's got it in the bag. He only has to fight an orc and a captain. He's got this. 
battle has been joined. Battle has been joined, and we've got two mini fights and some interesting revelations. Yeah, what was all that about? Uh, you know, I've seen you before, or you know, mm. what was that? I, I, I gotta to that again now. Interesting thoughts and mm. her father's tutelage of the black speech. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, gosh, there's something going on there. Ah, character developments upon character they developments. They got some history. They got some history. That's right. These two know each other. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, there's battle to be done and orcs to be slain. Blood is flowing. That's right. Oh my gosh, that was good. I liked it. Awesome. I'm you're you're the king. You're the king of the metaphor, right? Eh? You you love you love to write with the metaphor. I do. I, I've noticed that. Metaphors are splashed in there like stones in the rippling water. Or like Pez coming from uh, a <laughs> Pez dispenser. <laughs> I, I think it's good. I like your metaphors. It's it's you. it's uh, it's your style, man. I think so. Hopefully, people like them. I don't know if it's good writing. I just like writing metaphors. <laughs> it's ideal descriptions. All right. Well, I think you know maybe this is going to get wrapped up in the next segment. What do you think? I think so. Yeah, I think we won't get about. I mean, hey, they're either going to live through this or they're going to die through this. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, they like the dice. The dice are about to be thrown here. I think this would be a great opportunity for a pretty nifty um, uh, actual battle companies game. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah, you know, we could yeah. do. We still have to roll. That's what we have to do. Oh, that's right. What what we may as well do now, because we're just about the at the end of the first chapter, is we may as well end the first chapter, figure out what experience we have, mm -hmm. and then you know it's div divided by five. Like for every five, you get a roll. You get a roll for a uh, what they call it, an upgrade. I forget that's what right. They call it. Yeah, so we'll do that at the end. Maybe. Yeah, we'll do that at the end. I think that's a good way of ending off because yeah, yeah. we, we do kind of like these characters just from a, like a battle company's perspective. And, you know, it's always nice to tie back our short stories to or to, to give life to a battle company's campaign. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that idea. And see if we're we should, actually... You know what we should do, too. Mm -hmm. I was thinking what we should do is uh, we should make models for our characters. I like that. I like that idea. Of course, that's a hobby project, so it could take six months, and by then the story will be long gone. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. That's a hobby project. I haven't even got my challenger army done, man. Let's slow down. Let's yeah. slow down here. <laughs> okay. All right. After that thrilling and chilling TBD Chronicles, <laughs> we're now on to my favorite segment. What have I got in my pocket? Which, as this is episode 25 and we've been doing this for a year, I'm not going to explain how it works. You get the gist. We ask each other questions. Boom. Don, give me a question. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was thrilling it was. and chilling. I was on my, the edge of my uh, seat with that, uh, with that uh, fight you were... Oh, weaving there yeah, it was good to hear that yeah like Garther that. needed that sort of like boot the door down let's do this moment I just decided to change the door with the orc's head <laughs> <laughs> I All like right. it I like he's it in he's there, in he's there in now there. Um, okay so I originally had a 
question written up for you and the more i looked at it it was it was pretty involved it could have been a long conversation Mm -hmm. and i kind of thought you know what this could actually be a main topic honestly so i um i quickly uh sidebarred that question for future development and instead what i'm going to do is i'm just going to read you a quote from lord of the Mm -hmm. rings and you're going to tell me who is saying okay. this? Okay, you ready? <clears throat> let me get my let me get my voice going here. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. You have my pity, and I do not send you from my side. I go myself to war with my men. I bid you come with me and prove your faith. Uh, that we say it into Grima. Correct. Thank Good you. Good job. You got it. You got it. I have another one if sure. you want the second that, one. That was my big beginner's luck. <laughs> <laughs> these these aren't tough. I, I went for ones that were Ouch, you know, that were uh, that were, were gettable. gettable for me for a less learned folk. Well, plus they have to be rec- somewhat recognizable, sure. right? <laughs> okay, you ready for the one. next one? <clears throat> Stir not the bitterness in the cup that I have mixed for myself. Have I not tasted it now, these many nights upon my tongue, foreboding that worse yet lay in the dregs? And now indeed I find. Would it were not so. Would that this thing had come to me. Oh, it's Denethor. Uh, right on. Two for two. It sounded like his cup of dregs. I think that's the moment where he was talking to Faramir and Gandalf and Pippin, just before Pippin was like, yes, I... I yeah, Gandalf is there. Gandalf is, has mm, the next yeah. lines. Comfort yourself, says Gandalf. In no case would Boromir have brought it to yeah, you. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so you got oh, it. Yeah, two for thank two. You, thank well you. done, I appreciate sir. that. I was I was shocked it was coming around both times you're because your voice I'm like it's Saruman it's got to be that's Saruman's voice and I'm just like no, no, no. <laughs> how is my voice were they different was it was it, good. Was it all right yeah. all right my question right, to you right, is good. not as um, awesome tacular as that uh, it's actually more of just a, a, a curiosity question more than anything else uh, as a as a, okay, a yeah, sure. Kaza Doom player. Um, Give yourself. I have a question for you. How? There's a lot I of know, us out there, you know. So you got to rep this question then. Oh boy. How do you rate the dwarven ballista? How do yeah, I rate it? Is it a good it? thing? A bad um, thing? Well, honestly, like high skill cap. Um. I haven't played with it a lot, mm-hmm. to be fair. I have played with it a few mm-hmm. times, probably three or four times. Um, there are things I really do like about it are, um, a lot of people, I don't know if you listened to Into the West last podcast, number 30, um, they did talk briefly about war machines and the general consensus consensus was, um, kind of in their current state. They don't 
really fit seamlessly mm. in the game kind of unrealistic to a point let's say uh and and i definitely share that view um i don't think the big war machines or siege engines rather um belong in a skirmish game um certainly in a scenario where you're attacking a castle or defending a position mm -hmm. absolutely 100 percent. you know but in a head-to-head uh, -head battle in a tournament you know it to me it doesn't really belong there however small siege engines of which the dwarven ballista is one do mm -hmm. belong at least are they're a better fit yeah, in the I game um, and to me the points for the dwarven uh, ballista are not exorbitant so the cost is is fairly decent um, it's uh, effective in actually destroying opponents siege engines um, so it's it's very mm -hmm. good at that. Um, it it can like because dwarves um, are slow, it does have like a decent reach, so it gives them increased mm -hmm. firepower. One of the things that I don't like about it, and this is for any of the direct fire weapons, especially for for this type of army, is I always find when I play with this type of weapon that your own army starts to get in the way of it. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's a direct fire, especially because they're a good army, um, you end up having a limited amount of shooting you can do because your own models end up getting yeah. in the way. Um, so I do like it. I do think it's a, one of the better choices simply from, you know, to me, I, I see it as a more realistic uh, siege engine than, say, the Iron Hills mm -hmm twirly whirly for example which to me is smacks of ridiculous mm. um whereas this one is you know you can make sort of historical comparisons to this and actual weapons that were used on the ancient battlefield yeah. which are um reasonable yeah you know um so in that sense i do like it um but having said that like to me i can never convince myself that it's better than the equivalent amount of points in heroes or mm -hmm. warriors uh, and that may just be because i'm inexperienced with it or i just tend to prefer those other things mm -hmm. to that you know maybe i should play with it more just to have more experience yeah. with it like if i'm playing 800 or higher i'm probably putting it yeah, in my that makes army sense. you know because it like there it would definitely have right. a role for sure it's another tool um, in your toolbox but yeah that yeah that's okay. my answer yeah no I, when i look at these siege engines um especially for good evil's slightly different but for good when i look at those siege engines i say to myself you really need to play them play your army your battle line radically different than what you normally would i specifically to um, allow your siege engine to have more shots throughout the game, right? Like, I would almost say, like, mm -hmm. like as a dwarven army, which is not something they do well, I would almost say, like, you'd have to shift your army so that instead of having a straight line-on-line -line clash, you would almost, like, throw your army around your opponent's flank to purposefully keep models, for your opponent's models, out of combat just so you can shoot into them. You know what I mean? So you're you're always yeah. giving space or, or, or line of sight and, and and distance or an opportunity for your siege engine to shoot, which can be good and bad because 
there could be moments where you don't actually want to give ground and you want to sort of uh, pin your enemy, which means in those moments, your CG engine just does nothing, right? Yeah, that's the one thing I don't like about a, a weapon like that. And again, it's mostly the direct fire weapons mm -hmm. is that you, you can have like three turns in a row where you actually just can't shoot. Yeah. Because you're you're you've been blocked off by your own guys and there's just no way around it. Well, what do you think? Is that it? Are we were you at the end of another episode? We're at the end of a monster it's episode. A long, it's a long one. It's a long one, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get the the scissors out when I edit this. I think. Oh, don't worry. You'll just be listening to me talk, and you'll be like, cut, 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 <laughs> blathering, rambling, cut, cut, cut. I'll take that as permission. You know it is. It's always permission. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to another episode of North of the Shire, episode 25, and we will be back next time. I think with a special bonus anniversary narrative story focused episode 26 